Hey, it's great to be back after that short break, and we are excited to debut Top of Mind Season 4. The theme for the season is Assessing Assumptions. Each week, we'll be looking at one system or common cultural belief and asking ourselves, what if we weren't so set in our ways? Can setting aside our comforting assumptions about child welfare, for example, or medicine, or public safety, economic opportunity, cultural preservation, or public schools help us to make better choices? Get ready for some important and inspiring episodes in Season 4 of Top of Mind, starting right now. I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, when living longer conflicts with dying well. How do you plan your life when you're not sure how much time you have left? In 2012, David Oliver was diagnosed with advanced cancer, and he started making videos like this one. I may have three months, I may have six months, maybe a year. I hope so. But at each one of these points, three, six, and 12, we have to make some decisions. Should we do more chemo? Radiation? Both? Or neither? Maybe none of them. David Oliver was a professor of gerontology at the University of Missouri, and he loved teaching. So it seemed natural to use his diagnosis as a teaching opportunity. He collaborated on the videos with his wife, Deborah, who had been a hospice social worker and administrator for decades before becoming a college professor and hospice researcher. I guess if anybody was ever as prepared, we were lucky in that we'd had that experience. So this presented itself as an opportunity to find meaning. The Olivers hoped that being so public about David's cancer journey would help others coping with terminal illness. Often, the videos involved them explaining their decisions at each stage of the disease. And Deborah says they deliberated over everything. So the first decision we had to make was, do we pursue chemotherapy or not? Um, keeping in mind that everything we knew about chemotherapy, both of us, was negative. I'd never heard anybody come into hospice and say, boy, I'm so glad we tried chemotherapy. Um, they always come in saying, oh, my God, it, it was awful and, you know, probably shortened my life because of the side effects of chemotherapy. But we decided to go ahead, and it was a very purposeful decision. It was designed to buy time uh, because we weren't ready to say goodbye but we also weren't ready for a bunch of side effects. And depending on how it went, depending on the success, would depend if we continued or not. And after the first round, um, it was gone for 18 months. And when it came back, uh, the physicians are going, okay, we could try the second line therapy. And David's like, no, no, we're not going to do that. For me, it's simply not worth it. I don't want to spend my time uh, fighting this thing in hospitals and clinics all the time. I want to be able to get out and do things and have a, as the word goes, a quality of life or a quality of living uh, in the time that I have left. Did you feel like you were being pressured by the medical team? I mean, maybe in a loving and well-intentioned way, but like you had to be defending your decision or he had to be defending his decision not to get treatment. Always. Always. Um, his oncologist loved him. He was a success story. Everybody loved him, right? Um, and he goes, you know, if you just did this, I, I could buy you more time. And David's like, not the kind of time I want. Thank you very much. You cannot cure me. My definition of cure is not absence of disease for a time being. That's the definition oncology uses. Um, he goes, my, my definition of cure is like forever, and that would take a miracle. Did it ever feel to you like giving up? Never. Um, 
We were working too hard to feel like we were giving up. We were just working at different things. Giving up would have, those terms sound like somebody's depressed and ha feeling hopeless without choice. We never felt any of that. We just like fast forwarded our life. And so things that we'd always wanted to do, we did, we went ahead and did. He wanted to go to the Arctic <laughs> Circle. We went to the Arctic Circle. And my daughter wanted to have a baby, so she hurried up and had a baby so that Aww. he could meet his grandfather. So our, our whole family, and it was a family event, we had conversation after conversation after conversation with our children. Everything was 100% out in the open. Um, we worked hard at living, and um, dying would take care of itself, and it did. Dying is inevitable. But survival is a basic instinct. Living things want to keep living. And medical advancements have made it possible to cheat death in many instances that would have been quickly fatal not that long ago. So dying is still inevitable, but it's become easier to avoid thinking about. And yet, for most of us, it's not going to happen suddenly. Our deaths will come with a series of decisions many of us will feel unprepared to make. Does opting out of chemotherapy or emergency surgery or intubation amount to choosing death? Is it better to fend off death until it overpowers all that medicine has to offer? This season on Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions, exploring the unintended consequences of assuming that the best way to do something is the way we've always done it. Today, what is behind the cultural default we have toward extending life at all costs. And what has that meant for living and dying? It's likely that some of the most uncomfortable decisions we will face at the end of our lives will have been set in motion long ago by the almost automatic choices that we made to take the drug or have the test or undergo the surgery that a doctor recommended. A lot of modern healthcare, particularly in the United States, really has this drive towards trying to intervene. Chris Moriades is an internal medicine doctor and a professor at Dell Medical School at UT Austin. Sort of the default is to do more. And, you know, part of it is doctors want to help. We're trained to help. There's a problem. We want to do something about it. And... We're capable of doing things we couldn't even dream of doing. Uh, you know, even a decade ago when I finished my residency training, but uh, it, it can also cause a lot of harm if we're not taking the perspective of like, will this test or procedure or medication really help the patient in front of me? And does it align with what their goals are for their lives? Early in his career, Dr. Moriades decided to focus on highlighting the problem of doing too much in modern medicine, too many antibiotic prescriptions, too many CT scans, MRIs, and blood tests. I was a internal medicine resident at UC San Francisco, um, and it was 2010, and the Affordable Care Act was coming out, and kind of healthcare costs were the talk of the country. And I'm not a dollars and cents guy, um, but I started to realize that this was an issue that was really important to the patients in front of me, that patients cared about their costs increasingly because they were being stuck with more and more costs. And I was noticing that the culture around me was overrun with overuse so that about a third of what we do in healthcare doesn't make people healthier. One trillion dollars a year on healthcare that doesn't make people healthier. And so here we're doing things that are, if you're not making people healthier, everything you do has risk. So you're causing harm financially and physically. And it just seemed like something that we were not talking about. So I decided to add a program initially just to start teaching a little bit about cost. Like, shouldn't we know what the cost is financially and physically of the things that we are doing? And it just so happened that that began to take off. Moriades became an organizer for a national initiative to prevent healthcare overuse called Choosing Wisely. He founded a nonprofit focused on better care at lower cost and co-authored a medical school textbook about the issue. You know, we used to think, I, I feel like the picture in everybody's mind was the thorough physician was the best. But I think there's an increasing recognition that even better than thoroughness is appropriateness is doing the things that are helpful, that are appropriate, um, not doing the things that don't make people healthier. 
besides the desire to help, are there other motivations that prime doctors to, to intervene? Yeah. So there, I think there are many different things. One is that both physicians and patients research show um, greatly overestimate the benefits of medical interventions and underestimate the harms. So we tend to think things are going to help a lot more than, than they're going to hurt. Um, and so that drives some of this. Um, there is a somewhat uh, American cultural value around new technology and uh, kind of being cutting edge and doing more. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people will always point to um, the fee-for-service system. So in healthcare, essentially, the, the predominant system is that hospitals, doctors, healthcare providers are paid for doing stuff. So um, if you do more things, you end up getting paid more. So you're not paid on the outcome. You're not paid on like, this patient feels better. <laughs> you're paid on how many things did I do for this patient? Yeah, and it, that's the predominant payment mechanism, you know, over the last uh, 100 years or so here. And, and people like myself are advocating to change that. But yes, I will say though, I, I personally think most doctors are not doing things to make more money. But the point is that that system doesn't provide any pushback to doing more. So in other words, it's it's not like you're being driven by the money, but it is that because the the economics work out, you know, the hospital's not saying to do less, your colleagues are not saying to do less. Um, there's just not a lot of messaging around doing less because the system kind of hums on doing more. And how about from the patient? How common would you say it is for a patient to say, let's do less? Or, and I guess the extension of that would be a doctor thinking, if I don't do this, am I going to get sued? Or is the patient going to think that I failed them, right? Yeah. So certainly, again, because of that cultural value around doing more, because of that belief that medical interventions help more than they actually oftentimes do, um, many patients do want interventions and want more. Although the studies show that a lot of times we interpret it as a patient, you know, demanding more or wanting more when really, if you get down to it, they just want advice about what's best, right? So they come in, they're talking about their cold, the doctor's thinking they want antibiotics. If you actually ask the patient, um, it's not that they want antibiotics. That was the, the, maybe they even said they want antibiotics, but that's not actually what they want is you want to get better. I understand you want to feel better. Feeling sick is terrible. Um, let me talk about ways that you can maybe feel better. Uh, but, you know, the, the antibiotic is not the solution. Having those conversations take time though. In a system where more doctors are told they can only meet with the patient for 15 minutes, yeah. it's a lot easier to write a prescription than to take the time to have that conversation. Um, and then the one other piece you brought up was this idea of being sued. Um, and certainly when I speak about doing less, a lot of times physicians will bring up uh, that concern about malpractice and this cover your butt uh, medicine of, of like, let's prescribe something or let's order something because I worry if I didn't get that head CT, patients found to have a tumor a couple months later, I'm going to be sued. And certainly uh, our current system is set up in a way that that is a, a real valid concern. But turns out that ordering tests um, has never been shown, as far as I know, to actually decrease your risk of being sued. The only things that decrease doctors' risk of being sued is communication and documentation. So, you know, if I have a conversation with my patient, I explain why we're not going to get that head CT right now um, and why it would cause harm. But if I'm wrong, we're going to, you know, I'm going to follow up with you and we'll see in a month and, you know, consider. I think patients understand that. If we don't have that communication and they feel like we're withholding or we're being negligent, that's when you get in trouble, I think. But what harm is there really in doing a CT or MRI just to be sure that nothing more serious is happening? Well, the financial side is pretty straightforward. Whether you pay anything out of pocket or not, we're all paying for medical overuse through higher insurance premiums and more tax dollars going toward Medicare and Medicaid. That trillion dollars we're spending on unnecessary health care could be going toward things that actually do make our communities healthier. But setting aside the financial costs, Dr. Moriarty says there's an emotional toll to an unnecessary scan. If you get imaging of the head, 
there, there's oftentimes where we may see something um, that ends up concerning people, but is really nothing. It's just incidental. It's an incidental finding. And so it causes worry, causes harm, causes further testing, causes people to feel less well, but ultimately is nothing that needs to be done. Or similarly, this has shown a lot with MRIs. It's really clear that the vast majority of people who have routine low back pain, um, it will get better within four to six weeks. Um, you know, we look for, as doctors, we get taught what we call red flag symptoms. So things that actually would make us concerned. But if you do not have those red flag signs or symptoms, it's most likely that you, you know, strained a muscle or, or uh, injured a disc, um, and that's going to get better on its own. So taking a picture of it, only makes you feel worse because you get told, oh my gosh, this, you know, you've got this slip disc. It causes actually increased testing because you see something or increase, like they'll say, oh, you should go see the neurosurgeon about this. So there's time and money and worry that comes along with doing this. Um, now, if your back pain doesn't get better in like six weeks, then maybe you need the MRI. But for the vast majority of us, that's not the case. You know, I've been thinking about this kind of default stance that if there's something to be done to address a problem, we should do it. Because I watched it play out for my mother. She was really unlucky in health. For 20 years, she was treated for an autoimmune disease with powerful drugs that obliterated her ability to fight infection and degraded her bones. That led to frequent antibiotic use, which caused devastating gut problems. She also developed severe back and neck pain, prompting half a dozen spine surgeries and many more procedures to address other knock-on effects of the various interventions she'd received. Until finally, when she was barely into her 70s, one of those procedures led to an infection so complicated her doctors weren't sure they could cure it. They were willing to try, but mom would be looking at months in hospital and rehab facilities. And by then, her quality of life had become so limited and the pain so bad that she was done trying things. She just wanted to be home. And that's where she died two weeks later. And I wonder if her final years might have been less miserable if she hadn't been predisposed, like so many of us are, to say yes to whatever intervention was offered. I brought this up with Dr. Moriades. I'm sorry to hear that experience with your mother. And I, I wish that were not the experience of so many people. I mean, that is, I think, maybe even more the norm than, than not, um, is this cascade of interventions that occur, um, particularly at the end of life. Part of it is just this idea that we can do so much in healthcare. And I think, uh, again, the, the, the pace of breakthroughs has been breathtaking over the last decade. We can do so much. It becomes shocking when you are then at the end of your life and, and you expect like something, there's some, you know, technology, some miracle drug, something. And to then be told we can't change the outcome, um, I think that's really hard, of course, for, for all of us. And I think for a lot of patients, when they end up in these situations, it's clear that they don't have a good grasp on um, perhaps the, the seriousness of their underlying conditions and folks haven't had a, uh, you know, a meaningful and frank conversation about this is, you know, this is the natural course of, of life um, for all of us, but particularly, you know, of, of heart failure or of advanced cancer or of advanced dementia. And so I wish those conversations happened earlier that with primary care physicians, um, if a patient has cancer with their oncologist, with patients' family members, to really have a clear understanding of this is what's important to me this is my philosophy around how I want my treatment and my healthcare. Um, and if I'm in a situation where I can't speak for myself, these are the things that are important. Um, and I think that that will make it much easier to ensure that we're not doing things that are discordant with people's goals, because that's a harm. Chris Moriades is a hospital medicine physician and assistant dean for healthcare value at Dell Medical School at UT Austin. 
Those conversations he mentions where we've expressed our goals and wishes to our physicians and family often go hand in hand with creating a living will, which turns out to be at the root of another fairly common assumption built on shaky ground. It's this idea that as long as you've got a document that says, don't resuscitate me when it's clear I'm dying and here's the person I want making decisions for me at that point, your exit from life will be smooth. The problem, of course, is that legal documents are written as if we had more clarity medically than we actually do. ICU Dr. Sam Brown says it's rarely clear when it's time for a living will to kick in. And if you've spent a life saying yes by default to everything medicine has to offer, it's traumatic and not at all straightforward to know when to start saying no. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. The fundamental problem is uncertainty. If we had perfect certainty of the timing and cause of our deaths, it would be much easier to navigate a good death. I'm Sam Brown. I'm an ICU physician and I'm vice president for research at Intermountain. I'm also a professor of medicine at the University of Utah, and uh, I don't speak for any of my employers. On his own time, Sam Brown thinks and writes a lot about the spiritual and ethical elements of medicine. Several years ago, he published a book called Through the Valley of Shadows, about the problem of assuming that a living will can guarantee a good death. He says the typical living will just isn't nuanced enough for the reality of dying. And in fact, when you ask people who filled out a living will whether they would want life support technologies in a variety of different situations, they say, oh yeah, just if I'm permanently unconscious or if I'm certainly dying. But the reality is that for most people, That doesn't happen until right before they go. And so that's the the unintended consequences are they get used as a kind of shorthand for encouraging the clinical teams to disengage at some point and to give in to a kind of pessimism or you don't believe that your treatments are going to make a difference. So a living will can end up reinforcing a tendency in ICU doctors that is opposite of the do-everything mindset evident in many other parts of healthcare. What I see is a kind of therapeutic nihilism that comes quickly. In my experience, when I ask trainees, um, is this patient going to live or die? And uh, should we soldier on here, other things being equal? They tend to feel like it's futile at about 50% predicted mortality. So wait, so translate that. A patient has a 50% chance of survival and the inclination on the part of your medical trainees is to give up on that patient? Yeah. Unconsciously, but they treat a lot of patients. So think about it. If you have a 50% chance of survival, if you get top-notch treatment, then you're going to take it. Like 50% survival versus 0% survival, go ahead and treat me. But if you're treating multiple patients, that means that half of the patients you try to save are going to die. And that's a heavy burden just emotionally to deal with, to really commit yourself and really work hard on behalf of a patient and know that half of them are going to die. It wears on you. And he says doctors often don't have the training or support they need to process that grief. So a living will can inadvertently become a way for doctors to distance themselves from emotional pain and even make them prone to stop treatment earlier than a patient might choose if he or she were conscious. Take this example from Dr. Brown's book. There's a maybe 65-year-old guy that we'll call Jack who did not want to be a vegetable. And so he'd filled out a DNR, DNI, and then just had gallbladder surgery for an infected gallbladder. And, uh, you know, I don't know, one out of 20 patients when they're waking up from anesthesia from a big surgery just don't wake up quickly. And they may need to go back on the breathing machine, the ventilator, while they clear the anesthesia from their bodies. 
And that's what was going on with Jack. And I actually had uh, one of the physicians in training and a nurse come up to me and say, we can't reintubate Jack because he's got a DNI. <laughs> I mean, I, I tried not to be rude, but I laughed. I said, we're reintubating Jack. We reintubate him and 12 hours later, he's cleared the anesthesia and he wakes up totally fine from his gallbladder surgery and goes on to live many good, good additional years. And Jack thought he was just filling out a form that says, don't make me a vegetable. But the teams were saying, oh no, there's a specific instruction here that we must not innovate him. And so it gets, it gets pulled out of context. Nobody's trying to act in bad faith. It just, it's confusing. And that's where conditional planning and flexibility and nimbleness and open lines of communication become so important and where living wills and advanced directives are such crude instruments uh, that beg more questions than they answer. What is the good death that you would like to be able to offer patients who come to death's door in the ICU? I think the death I would like to offer someone, and it's, I almost sound like I'm a vending machine or a, or a convenience <laughs> store clerk. <laughs> would you like some nachos with your death? Or, but uh, what I mean is, if it proves to be your time to die, what I would like to bring to you is a careful listening ear, human kindness, technical expertise, and good communication. And then I'd like to walk with you in the balance of those tragic trade-offs that confront all of us that is most true to you as a person. Can you give me an example of a tragic trade-off, maybe in the context of a, of a patient that you've treated? Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing that's resonating with me most proximately now is my wife, Kate Holbrook, who died of... Uh, metastatic uveal melanoma. Uh, the cancer began in her eye 10 years ago, and then five years ago, it returned in her liver. And um, at a series of junctures, as the disease got worse, we sat together and pondered, what's the next step? And up until 10 days before she died, at each point, she chose more treatment. Yeah, we did 10 clinical trials. And and from those clinical trials, we got an extra two and a half years with her. And they were two and a half years that were fraught with emotion and that were marked at times by pain. And increasingly in the last few months of her life, um, it was hard. Uh, you know, a tumor ate through one of her, the bones of her back and caused uh, a breakage in her back that caused pain. Ultimately, the tumor strangled her intestines and she died of starvation. So she um, she wasted away over about eight weeks and then breathed her last. Um, and what was striking to me was uh, Kate, many people know her, uh, was a very elegant woman, very poised. And it was hard for her those last few months when she wasted away, but there was so much tumor in her belly that she looked like a person with anorexia nervosa who was nine months mm -hmm. pregnant. And the tragic trade-off was if she wanted more time, she would have to live in that body that was betraying her. And to, to be so obviously someone dying of cancer was, was hard for her. Uh, emotionally. So she could have decided to go on hospice much earlier and to have had less time with us. And she consistently chose to soldier on until the end. She, she did request a feeding tube and she didn't like the tube, but the tube probably got us an extra couple of weeks with her that we would not otherwise have had. But it's that you, you very quickly can end up in a situation where more time is more time with more suffering. But the reality is that a lot of us suffer in a lot of ways, and yet we continue to live rich and fulfilling lives. And, and my sweet Kate worked uh, the first two days on hospice. Hmm. 
because it was so important to live well and fully, even when life was very, very hard. Uh, but she ultimately decided not to go to the ICU. Uh, she did decide to go on hospice before the ICU, and, and we could have uh, we could have gotten another four to six weeks, maybe, if we had been even more invasive at that point. And that was another tragic trade-off. And I think for her, it was when she was no longer able to be with us, uh, with her family, uh, in, a, in an aware way. That was when Kate felt like her time had come to pass. We're all haunted by how hard it was for her to die and by the fact of her death. There's no doubt. Uh, but none of us wishes she'd died sooner. None of us regrets powering through the pain and the broken back and the strangled intestines and the starvation. We wish it hadn't happened, but we don't want her dead instead of having gone through that. So what could we do as patients? What, what is your advice for how to, how to make the best decision possible <laughs> to be able to ensure the kind of good death when the time comes? Uh, my, my sense is that it's important to have someone who knows you well and who can speak for you if you ever are unable to speak for yourself. And then periodically, I think, reflect on these kinds of questions together and, and give them a sense for how you're thinking. And uh, there are some people who advocate um, asking your doc, uh, would you be surprised if I were dead within the year? And when the doc says, no, I don't think I would be. Then I think it's appropriate to ask, what do you think I would die of? And not my, can like you can say cancer, but there's like 15 different ways to die of cancer, and it's worth knowing. Am I gonna bleed to death? Am I gonna slowly suffocate? Am I going to waste away? Will I die of liver failure? Will my kidneys go? And you know, nobody's gonna know perfectly, but they can give you a sense. On average, how do people in my position exit life? And then get from them the top two or three candidates, and then say, okay, now how will we know that I'm going down one of those paths? And then how are we gonna manage those symptoms? And then think with them together concretely and be open to flexible thinking. You may do a procedure, an invasive procedure on hospice because it gets you some more meaningful time or it helps with your symptoms. So you don't wanna have this all or nothing kind of thinking, but you want that flexibility and nimbleness. Um, and then I think, in my experience again, for most people, when they've got a progressively, predictably deteriorating disease, when they reach the point that they're no longer able to have meaningful relations and interactions with the people they care about, that's when they know their time has come to die. And so working with the doctors and nurses to understand when that comes. Almost none of that maps onto any of these living wills and advanced directives and et cetera, but it's, uh, that takes extra work. And it takes extra work from the treaters and it takes extra work from the patients and families. And too often I think people want easy ways out. Either do everything, no questions asked, grin and bear it, or give me a suicide pill. And I think the, the real richness of life is lived between those extremes. Dr. Brown, thank you very much for sharing your story and, and your insight with us today. Yeah, thanks, Julie. It's good to be with you. Sam Brown is an ICU doctor, vice president for research at Intermountain Health, and a professor of medicine at the University of Utah. His book about end-of-life decisions is called Through the Valley of Shadows. Most of the decisions and the tragic trade-offs Americans confront at the end of life will not actually happen in a hospital ICU. They'll happen in a care facility or at home. Nearly half of all Medicare recipients spend time on hospice. And if you are like I was until pretty recently, you'll assume that getting on hospice is the golden ticket to a peaceful exit. But coming into this world is a lot of work. Birthing is a traumatic process. 
and leaving this world is no different. There's a lot about dying on hospice that could be better if we are willing to look it squarely in the eyes. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. I'm David Oliver, and uh, this is video number 12 in our series about my cancer journey. This This one we're calling Cancer, My Exit Strategy. We heard some of David and Deborah Oliver's story at the start of the episode. At the time they made this video, his cancer was in remission, but they knew it would be back. We just don't know when, but this waiting, This waiting has been very tedious. Tedious indeed, but the advantage of it is that it has given us time to have a lot of really difficult conversations. And uh, I've asked him to kind of tell me, okay, so how is it that you want to die, David? Well, I want to die well. And what does that mean? That, That tells me nothing. Well, I've developed an acronym for it. Uh, It spells hope, so it's pretty easy to remember. Uh, The H stands for home. I want to die at home. The O stands for uh, others. I want to be surrounded by others, family and friends. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, anybody can walk in. P is for pain. Actually, pain management. I do not want to suffer. And in this day and age, I don't think you should have to suffer with cancer. And the E stands for excitement. I still want to be excited about living. Um, I hope people want to come visit and they, they will come into a house uh, full of, uh, you know, fun and um, not depression. What did you think about his wishes, Deborah? You know, um, that was so, so important. That simple acronym helped us make every decision, especially in the final days. I never once worried about overdosing him, and I have worked with caregivers for years and years, and I know that it's very scary to give your loved one large doses of morphine. We were dosing every hour at the end of his life, and many people get very afraid of that. I was not afraid. Because you knew that he wanted to be pain-free. That's right. I knew it was the most important thing to him. The night before he died, Um, we started calling friends to come over. And so we had, the house was just full of friends. Um, My daughter joined us uh, via video. His youngest son came in from Springfield and we basically had a party. He was unable to communicate, but people took turns going, sitting by his chair and talking to him and saying goodbye. It was exactly what he meant by excited by the end and surrounded by others. And it was in our home. And it's one of the most special memories that we have. And all along the way, um, those acronyms, all I had to say is, okay, which one does it fit into? And it it made the decision-making easy. I had no guilt around any of that. The decision-making was easy. The following through, not so much. We'll talk about that. We definitely need to talk about that. Um, But at what point did he go into hospice? It was um, exactly six months before he died. His energy level was um, going down. His appetite was changing. Um, We had some cognitive issues. His mobility was, everything was just hard. And my stress was going off the charts. And so he sat down with our um, attending physician who was his very best friend. And he said, "Um, we need to be on hospice. It's time. And he said, I think you've got longer than that. And he goes, Debbie needs hospice. And he was right. And um, so he said, let's go ahead. And uh, so we went in and we got it all. So that was a blessing. What, What did hospice promise to offer that you weren't getting at that point? We knew that hospice was for the patient and the family. Um, traditional healthcare is not for the family. Rarely did someone say, how are you doing, Debbie? 
Uh, and that's even in spite of David, you know, making the case that there are two patients in, in this drama. You get a social service, a social worker to come and help process things, medical equipment, all of the medicines uh, connected with the terminal disease are brought, delivered to you. And that, that on-call nurse, you know, just somebody else to say, hey, I've done this and this and this. Is it time to go to the hospital? Um, or can you come out and look? He had a wound, and I was trying to dress the wound, and am I doing this right, and how bad is this? Question after question after question, and the nursing visits increase as time goes on, and certainly in the very end, it's just absolutely essential. I can't, as hard as it was, I cannot imagine having gone through that without all of those things. What are some of the misconceptions you think people have about hospice? Uh, people call it giving up, um, and again, uh, that's there's nothing giving up about it. Um, people think that you can't do certain things if you have hospice, and that also is not true. But in order to qualify for hospice, you do need to be in a in a terminal situation with a prognosis of six months or less. And you're no longer seeking to forestall that. You're no longer pursuing treatment to put off. Death. Right. Symptom management only. And that's, you know, that's a critical difference. Um, but the idea that there's 24-hour care, some people are under that misconception, and, and that's not true. They do not take the place of the loving family that sits by the side and, and does all the things that you have to do. Um, they're there as consultants and, and visitors um, up to every day, sometimes twice a day if needed, depending on how bad it is, but they're not there 24 hours a day in the middle of the night. Um, and that's when people seem to always die. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of myths. Do you think in general people are too slow to go on to hospice? Well, the average length of stay is less than 30 days. So that tells you that we're not very good at it. Doctors aren't very good at prognosticating it. I've heard families that think that they their loved one has months and they die when they get home. Uh, there's no crystal ball. We said we're going to err on the side of having it early and you can always kick us out. And they do. Um, it, when you overstay, you're welcome. That can happen. Um if more people had that attitude, they'd have help a lot longer. And the whole process is much easier if you have that relationship with the hospice before a crisis. Um, the time to meet your hospice nurse is not the night that the patient dies. Yeah. Um, you had a metaphor, David had a metaphor that he would use of a river and rapids and a waterfall. One of David's final videos, he is reflecting on that metaphor, and I'd like to hear that. I've been riding this canoe along, and, and it's coming to the rapids, and they're getting pretty rough. And I know the waterfall is right there. And so I tell my hospice team, as I go over the waterfall, you know, just let me go and smile. Smile a big one, because you should know that I've had a good ride, and I am grateful very grateful. And in the meantime, as time goes on, you know what to do. Always say, go Tigers! His beloved Mizzou Tigers, yeah. right? Big sports fan. Big time. Where he taught. Yeah, he was a professor there. Okay, so, so the thing is that it sounds awfully serene and simple to have a big smile and let him go over the waterfall. And as you describe in your book, and as anyone who has attended to the bedside of a dying person might know, um, it's actually hard work. It doesn't—you describe it as—and I will agree with this in the case of my mother who passed away at home recently. The last 24 to 48 hours, they, yeah. to some extent, continue to haunt me. So let's talk a little bit about that, about— um, what dying at home and even with the support of hospice requires of the family. And, you know, there's very little research about this. I'm working on that right now. I'm interviewing caregivers about those final days. Um, we've had trouble in hospice in the recent last recent year uh, where you will get a, a policymaker um, deny a claim for a hospice inpatient bed or hospice inpatient stay, and you'll get words like, they're only dying, there's no skilled care required, 
there's nothing skilled that can be done, meaning that they think that people don't need anything. They just fall asleep. And they don't just fall asleep. Labor coming into this world is a lot of work. Birthing is a traumatic process. And leaving this world is no different. It has sights and sounds and feelings that are, are tough. And until you've heard the sound of um, agonal breathing, for instance, I mean, I'd been in hospice 20-some years, I'd, I'd never heard that term, and I'd never heard what that was like. And the sound that someone is suffering when they're not, it's just their body reacting to what's going on. But it's a horrifying sound, and it's one you don't forget quickly. Yeah. The agonal breathing was, for me, the most traumatic part of my mother's passing. To hear your unconscious loved one suddenly begin to moan in a guttural, choking, gasping way can be deeply upsetting. And it can go on for hours. Those of us at my mother's bedside were not at all prepared for it. It was only after phoning the on-call hospice nurse in a panic at 3 a.m. did we learn that agonal breathing was normal and not necessarily a sign that she was suffering. It, it took me by surprise. My experience was just like yours. It took several months to quit hearing that sound um, and to convince myself that indeed he did not die in pain. Um, and I did a lot of research on that, and I really believe that to be true. But it's just a part of the natural process. And so how we, how we prepare people for that is a million-dollar question. How common it is is not really known either. I mean, it doesn't happen to everyone. So then do you worry somebody and then have it not happen? I, I don't know. So I think the most we can say to families is that it is hard. It is very hard. And not everybody can do it. And that's okay. And our policymakers need to understand that. That you can do it for as long as you can do it, but you should have an option not to do it too. And to hire and in that, a nurse or to somehow... To hire in a nurse or to go to a hospice facility for the last couple of days or to go into the hospital for the last couple of days. That should be okay. And you're not, you're not failing. You're not doing anything wrong. What are some of our options? What could we do differently? Again, I compare it to birthing. There was a time when everybody was born at home. There was a time when anything important happened at home. People died at home. People were embalmed in their home. Um, and then there were problems. And so then we swung the other way. And every woman had to be in the hospital and no husbands were allowed and you have to be under anesthetic and dying became part of the hospital stay and people went in and they never came out and um, and deaths were horrible, absolutely horrible because those institutions were created to keep people alive, not to help people die peacefully. And so then we ended up back with special facilities, and that was all Europe's doing, and people died in a home-like place. And now we have some of those in our country, although they're shutting down, quite frankly, because um, they're not being paid for um, by anybody, and it's, it's very difficult. It's a great compromise. Um, we also have a built-in part of the hospice benefit that allows a nurse to be there 24 hours, but they've got to justify that they're delivering skilled care. <laughs> and there's where the, there's the definition that's the real pickle. Is it skilled care to take a dropper and put liquid morphine in somebody's mouth every hour when they can't swallow? Having done it, yeah, that's skilled care. But if you're a physician or a nurse, you're going, that's no big deal. It's not like we're injecting it. It's not like it's an IV. That's not skilled care. It may not meet the licensing requirements. We need to find a compromise in that. And people need a safety net. I can't imagine doing it if I was an 85-year-old woman who'd been married to their husband for 50 years and now I'm going through this. Um, I can't imagine having done that. And it took me and two daughters in order to make it happen. I mean, I was awake for 24 hours under all of this stress. It's not easy. So let's not say that it's not skilled care, because it is skilled care. 
Um, David died in your arms in the end. Yeah. And just like he wanted. Which is beautiful that you, I mean, you delivered for him. My, uh, my daughters woke me up and they were exhausted. Um, and they had given another dose of morphine and uh, they both went and laid down. And so we were alone, which is also, if I could have written the script, uh, how I would have written it. And um, it allowed me to say the things I needed to say. And, uh, and luckily I knew how to do that because I had, I had been taught and I have taught others. Um, and so it was actually beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. What is the, the mindset, the reorientation that you think we as individuals and as a society would benefit from when it comes to this, like, this question of when to keep on trying to live and when to allow death to happen? You know, if, if we were as comfortable talking about death as we are other things, um, we had beautiful, wonderful conversations with our children, priceless conversations with our children because we included them. We didn't try to protect them from this. We embraced them. And too often, people choose to try to protect one another. Um, and hope, the whole idea that hope is not about cure, but it's about whatever is important to you and to meeting um, what your definition is, can make it a very beautiful thing. The best time in our marriage and in our family life together was actually this 42 months that we had because there were no there were no secrets nobody was hiding anything if you you were upset about something you said it you got it off your chest and you made amends and we went on living and to be able to say everything there was nothing left unsaid and how many people can say that we just don't don't have to always wait until somebody's on death's bed in order to be able to do that. Um, so communication is a big piece of it. Our culture's got to redefine it from a horrific experience into something that can be beautiful. As hard as it was, um, it was also beautiful. And, um, and I want people to hear that side of it as well. Um, it may be the hardest thing, but it's also the biggest gift you can give somebody. And, and we need to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that people can make informed decisions uh, themselves. Deborah, thank you so much for sharing your story, for talking to us about David. Well, thank you for uh, asking me and uh, for bringing up this really important topic. We can't, we can't ignore it. it. Happens to all of us. Deborah Oliver researches hospice and palliative care. She's a professor at Washington University, St. Louis, and author of a memoir about being a caregiver for her husband David. It's called. Legacies from the Living Room, a love-grief equation. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Vanessa Goodman, James Hoops, Samuel Benson, and me, with help from Sam Payne. We had sound design by Brandon Lewis and Spencer Hewitt. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.